Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Psalm 17, Psalm chapter 17. Um, this is another one of these psalms. We don't know exactly when it was written. It's most likely that it was written when uh, David was on the run from Saul. That's probably our best guess. But it works in virtually any hard circumstance you might be in. So just three quick points. He's going to basically pray, see me, save me, and then satisfy me. So let's start. Psalm 17, verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So he's starting out here, uh, and he's basically saying, God, are you paying attention to me? I feel like I'm crying out to you all the time, and I don't feel like I'm getting any practical help. Or maybe I don't feel like I'm getting enough practical help. Now, I think two weeks ago, last time I was here, I think I mentioned, you know, I had an issue with my tooth. It drove me crazy. A buddy of mine said, why do you think that bothered you so much? And it took me literally about five seconds to get the answer, although I hated the answer. It's like, although I know in my mind this is a terrible thing that I'm about to say, this is what I feel in the basement of my heart. I feel that I'm entitled. That I'm a pretty good person, and thus God owes me a good life. I mean, that's evil. That's about as anti-gospel as you can get. Why am I bringing that back up? Is this reason. The, the distance between our head and our heart knowledge, our theology, and then in a sense our experience is oftentimes like the Grand Canyon. It's radical. So I don't care how long you've been a Christian, how good of a Presbyterian you are, how many R.C. Sproul books that you've read, you know, in your free time. Be careful of thinking because we have massive head knowledge, that necessarily equals maturity because it doesn't. And the main way to take the head knowledge and sink it into the basement of my heart so that it becomes more of an experiential knowledge is through wrestling prayer like this. It's not the only way, but this is through one of the main ways that you get it is you don't go, you know, when you're talking to your buddies in Sunday school, right? How's that thing going with your family member and it's really hard? Oh, it's fine. You know, I just trust the Lord. Praise God. God's sovereign. Romans 8, 28. Yeah, it's all wonderful. I mean, don't do that, okay? But even if you do do that, when you get alone in the prayer closet with Christ, certainly don't do that for numerous reasons. It's not good to lie to God. Secondly, He knows the reality of your heart, right? Your Sunday school buddy might think, wow, they're so spiritual. I wish I was more like them. But, but God is not impressed. And it would be much better for us to come to God like a child coming to his mother and father and kind of be, hey, I'm scared, I'm alone, I'm hurting. I do know the right answers, but I don't feel the reality of the right answers right now. Would you please help me? And that's a lot of what David's doing. Okay? When he says, here just calls, we've said this, but we should say it over and over again. He's not saying, I'm perfectly right. I'm sinlessly perfect. I've merited anything good or right from you. But he's saying, in this conflict between me and my enemies, they're the bad guys, I'm the good guys. 
I mean, they are wicked people. I'm at least trying to be faithful. I'm at least fumbling forward in some type of obedience. Verse 2, let my judgment come forth from your presence. What's he talking about? I mean, you're like, man, I don't want judgment from God. But what he's saying is, God, I'm looking at you like a judge. And if I'm the plaintiff, so to speak, and they are, I have a case against them, I'm asking you to render a judgment and to say, Practically, I'm not, I'm not expecting an audible voice, but I'm asking that the circumstances of life would prove me to be in the right and prove the other person to be in the wrong. That's not a bad way to pray. Hey, remember, even Luke chapter 18, do you remember the way that Jesus taught us to pray like a little old lady coming to a judge saying, give me justice against my enemy. Okay. Verse 3, you've tried my heart, you have visited me by night. What does he mean there? I think maybe one of two things, maybe both. When we are all alone, or mostly alone, that's when our true self shows up, right? In the night, when nobody else can see. We're not trying to impress anybody. That's when our real character is shown. What we do. Maybe when we're away from all the people we know. But also, sometimes it can just be when you're alone at night with your thoughts, and your mind starts to kind of spin, right? You're laying in bed, you can't fall asleep at night. What do your thoughts tend to run to? Maybe you start with prayer, but if you stay awake long enough, where do they go? All the things you need to do and all the things that you're worried about. Okay, all the things you need to do and all the things you're worried about. And then a lot of times there's a lot of self-condemning talk, right? What's wrong with you? Why can't you get it together? Why aren't you a better mother, father, whatever? Just can be condemning thoughts. You get a real picture of your heart. And what David is saying, again, is not God, I've got it all together. But in this one area of me and Saul, I'm trying my best. And you know that I've been righteous. The other thing he might mean by this tested by night is I had opportunities to kill Saul in the middle of the night in the darkness of a cave or when Saul was passed out of sleep and I did the right thing. Okay. This is good because as some of us, we may have some area we're praying and honestly, we can't pray this way. And so part of what we should pray is, God, I am worried about so much. Maybe I've got this issue at work, and I am not trusting you. I'm not resting you. I'm panicking. Would you make me more like David? Would you make me more where I can honestly say in this one area, with this one frustration I have, that I'm really trusting you, I'm really seeking to obey you? Verse 4. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. Remember, he probably even had some of his guys on his team saying, Come on, David. This is a small sin in the grand scheme of things. Saul's such a big guy. I'll kill him for you. And David's like, No, no, no. I'm not going to go that path. I'm not going to go the path of sinfully trying to take matters into my own hands. Again, my guess is most of us haven't literally been tempted to murder anyone lately. Maybe once or twice close on 280, you know, rush hour. But for the most part, I don't think that's where we live. Here's where I think I live. I know I live here, right? So this is not a hypothetical. This is like almost a daily temptation for me to murder somebody's reputation with my words. Hello? And for me, it's not gossip. It's not saying untrue things about people. I'm not saying I've never been tempted with that, but I, but I try to be a truth teller. The way, if I'm going to murder somebody's reputation with my words, I'm going to say true things that are very negative about them, but in a time and a place and a way that it shouldn't be said. Right? I'm not saying there's never a time to say something negative about somebody. There certainly is. Christ did it. But 
If I'm saying something to someone, maybe behind their back, to somebody else, it's true, but it's not really helpful. It's not loving. It's not edifying. What am I doing? I got to see that. I got to repent. Okay, so um, verse 5 My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. Charles Spurgeon had a great comment on this verse. He said, Listen, he said, Are God's paths slippery? Because that's kind of what it sounds like, right? In verse 5, it's like, God, you're, to be faithful in this life is so hard, God, because your paths are so slippery. But the Apostle John said, His commands are not burdensome. So Spurgeon said, No, God's paths are never slippery. It's just that our feet are slippery. Our feet aren't trustworthy because we're prone to wonder. And so through prayer, through meditation, we, we ought to daily be praying, Lord, lead me not into temptation today. Whether it's worry, whether it's slander, whatever it is, I know that I'm going to be tempted in this area because I've been tempted in this area every single day for the, for the year of 2023. So I shouldn't be surprised. Lead me not into temptation. Okay. See me. Pay attention. Help me. I'm struggling down here. That's his first kind of prayer to God. And then he's going to move into save me. Look in verse 6. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against me. Do you see how this is a prayer about experience? Show me your love. I don't want to just know about your love. I already know that. I want to experience it. Show it to me. Verse 8. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed their unfeeling heart with their mouth. They speak proudly. They have surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion and is eager to tear. And as a young lion lurking in hiding places, arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. Now let me just pause and say this real quick. If some of you read this and say, man... This is in the Bible, so I believe it's God's Word. I believe it's you know, trustworthy and it's helpful. But i got to be honest, Olin, I'm in a season of life right now where I don't, I don't have anybody that's an enemy. You know, me and my spouse are getting along great. I actually like all my kids right now. Uh, you know, things at work are wonderful. I, even the people, you know, that I play Little League with, you know, the other parents, I, we're all getting along. I don't have any enemies. Great. Enjoy it. It won't last. Okay? <laughs> but here's what I would say. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, I think, says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for those to devour. And, and John Owen even said, if you feel like you're in a season where you're not really being, being tempted by any sin right now, don't think it's because you're so mature. It just means, in a sense, that sin is lying dormant trying to lull you to sleep so that it can pounce. So if you're like, I, don't, I can't think of a human being that I could pray this prayer against. Or you might say, I do have some enemies, but I'm still struggling with I don't exactly know how to apply this and if I'm comfortable with it. And like, Okay, pray it against Satan. This stalking your soul every day trying to destroy you. Okay. Um, again, verse 7, wondrously show your loving kindness. This is this great Old Testament word. I've got the New American Standards. Everybody look at uh, verse 7 for just a second. Wondrously show your loving kindness. The word for loving kindness there. Does anybody have a different translation, a different word there? Steadfast love. Okay, it's this great Old Testament Hebrew word, hesed, that they, you really can't translate it 
easily in English because so much is packed into it. It's covenant love. I mean, it's, it's God's marrying His people. I will be your God. You will be my people forever and ever. That's what it is. And David's saying, I know it's real. I believe in it. And yet, I want to experience it. Look at verse 8. Keep them as the apple of the eye. You know, we even use that phrase still today, but what does it mean? If somebody tried to attack you and you felt like something was about to hit, you know, all of your body, maybe your eye would be the place in your body that you would protect the most. I don't want my eye to be damaged. It's very sensitive and you lose it, you're in trouble. And then this idea of like a mother chick, you know, a mother chicken gathering the little chicks around to take care of it. I want to feel that. Look at verse 10. They have closed their unfeeling heart with their mouth. They speak proudly. Now, unfeeling heart. Some translations will say they're fat heart. Here's probably what it means. In a sense, fat may mean just kind of dull, cold, lifeless. They're not sensitive. They're not caring. They're not compassionate. It also may refer to, at this point, Saul was the king. And so his henchmen, they were kind of living a fat and happy life. They were living the life of luxury. And so they were kind of looking down on David as this outlaw living in the caves. Again, they're like, we got it all going for us. Seems like God is blessing us, David, not blessing you. And therefore, they were very lacking in compassion. Um, so let's keep going. Uh, the third point is going to just be satisfy me. Look at verse 14. From men with your hand, O Lord... From men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I wake. And this is a little bit of a strange passage. And verse 14 specifically can be a hard verse to translate because he's talking, I mean, the whole psalm has been like, I'm the good guy, they're the bad guys. Take care of me, bless me, you know, wipe them out, essentially. And then verse 14, he says, These men, these evil men that I've been praying against, God, you fill their belly with treasure. They're satisfied. But it's pretty interesting. Some, some translators say, maybe this is a mistake. Maybe David meant to say, you really bless me, but it got mistranslated. But no, no, what he's saying is this. Saul and all his henchmen, if they're against you... <coughs> They're going to have their good things in this life. Do you remember Luke chapter 16? It's where Jesus kind of gives his most sustained teaching on hell. And it's about the rich man and then the poor man who would just eat the crumbs out from under the rich man's table. And then they both die and the rich man goes to hell and the poor man's in heaven. And the rich man is like crying out to the poor man, would you just bring me like a little drop of water to put on my tongue? And what I think Abraham in the play says to the rich man, say, you had your good things in life. Do you remember part, I think it's in the Sermon on the Mount, part of what Jesus would say to the Pharisees over and over is, listen, don't practice your righteousness in front of other people to get their praise. Because if you do, that's your reward and that's all you get. He's saying there will be a reward for that. Right? If you're the person that shows up to Sunday school and always puts your best foot forward, and listen, I'm not saying you've got to come into Sunday school and confess all your sins. Don't, don't hear that, okay? But I'm saying if you tend to live a life where every time you talk to anybody, you're always putting your best foot forward, which you could call your false foot, right? 
In a sense, what God is saying throughout the Bible is, if that's what you really want, the praise of men, you can have it. And it's going to utterly not satisfy you in the long run. And David is really coming to a deeper kind of understanding here because what he's realizing, and guys, this, this may be the key for us all to get out of this text this morning. Even as good, godly Christians, if we're praying for good, godly things, we're like, I'm, I'm not praying for like praise for men. I, I am praying that my kids will get saved. That's a good thing. I have family members with terrible illnesses. I'm praying for them to be healed. It's a great thing. I do feel like I've been working really hard at work and I would like a promotion or to be rewarded or to be on, get the respect. That's a good thing. Part of what David is starting to realize at the end of this psalm is, God, even if you answered all the great prayers that I'm praying, the good, true, righteous prayers, and you gave them to me, it wouldn't satisfy the depths of my soul. Have you ever experienced that in your own life? Right? You, you're, you're thinking, wanting, praying, working for something really good. Something right. I mean, something that God would approve of you seeking. And then you get it. And then almost as soon as it's over, it's like, ah. I mean, it was good. But it doesn't really satisfy me all the ways to the depths of my soul. It's not bad to pray for these secondary things, these good things. But the point is, I can't fall in love with God's gifts. Because they'll never be enough. And so what David is doing at the end of the psalm, verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And what he's saying is, I realize that full spiritual satisfaction doesn't come until the next life. Until I'm dead and resurrected and I get to see God in all His glory. That's when true satisfaction will really come home to me. Um, Derek Kidner commenting on this passage, he says, to have everything in life without God, that's actually a form of judgment. Right? I mean, you, we can see people in this life. It's like they, they have almost everything going for them except they don't have a relationship with God. That's a, that's a terrible form of judgment. And the reverse is true. To have essentially no good gifts in this life, but to really have a true, experiential, deep relationship with the Lord... That's the best kind of satisfaction you can have. And then you're almost kind of like, I can take or leave the gifts. That's real freedom. Because, guys, if we have the gifts, and let's just be honest, upper middle class America, southeastern United States at Briarwood, we got a lot of the gifts. And there's no shame in having the gifts. <laughs> but there is danger. And here's the danger. I think I did this two weeks ago. Your, your heart starts to close in and say, I love the gifts. I need the gifts. And what if the gifts get taken away? What's going to happen? Are you going to be shattered? Are you going to be devastated? Are you going to be able to say, easy come, easy go? Because my heart was never resting in that in the first place. That's true freedom. That's true maturity. Listen, this, this, this kind of point first came home to me, not studying this psalm, but thinking about Genesis chapter 3. I mean, it's still, even to talk about it, it's staggering me. Adam and Eve were literally in paradise. Eden. Perfect marriage. I mean, just in and of itself, it's like, hey, I'll take that. That seems like that would fix a lot of my woes, right? Just a great marriage. But they had a great job, right? Worked the garden, and there's no thorns and thistles. You don't even sweat. 
Work is fun. You know, whistle while you work. It's just like a game all day long. They had perfect communion with God. Right? They never went to bed on Saturday night, woke up on Sunday morning thinking, ah, I really don't want to go to church in the morning. Not that any of us would ever do that. But it's like everything in their life was peace and harmony and unity and blessing. And this little thought crept into their heart and their minds. <clears throat> it's not enough. Maybe there's more. Right? Here's what hit me. If that could happen, not just could, it did happen to Adam and Eve living in such a place of protection and bliss, how much more am I susceptible to that? Right? And so when I'm thinking straight, which is not near often enough, but when I'm thinking straight, part of what I try to do and remind myself in the morning, alone with the Lord, praying through a psalm is this. God, at some point today... I'm going to be tempted to feel like what you're giving me is not enough. And I'm going to be tempted to go find enough in my mind in some sinful way. And help me just remember, it's never going to feel like enough in this life. It's never going to really be enough in this life because we're not home yet. We're on a journey. And that's part of the journey of faith is saying, I'll wait. Yes, God, I want as many good things and as blessings as you will give me in this journey. Partially why? Because I'm weak. My faith is weak. And when you give me extra kind of blessings in this life, it makes it easier to obey you. That's just, that's just honest, right? And so I'm not ashamed to ask for it because I realize how weak my faith is. But God, help me not get addicted to the gifts. And help me not be stupid enough and immature to believe if I could just get all the gifts, then I'd really be happy in this life. You're never going to be 100% happy in this life. Because full contentment will only come in the next life when I can see Christ face to face. Just think about it from a physical standpoint. I want everybody just for a second to imagine or think about in your whole life the greatest meal you've ever eaten in your whole life. Best feast you ever had. How long was it after that meal until you were hungry again? Right? Maybe, maybe you had this amazing dinner. It's like, I wasn't hungry for the next 24 hours. Right. But 24 hours later, you're like, I've got to get something to eat. And guys, that's a good picture of where we at spiritually. You might go into worship service this morning and something about a song, something about the sermon. I mean, you might have some type of charismatic experience that Presbyterians are not supposed to have and have like a vision and hear a voice and be blown away and your skin be tingling and feel like you're lifted up to the third heaven like the Apostle Paul. And listen, it might last you two whole weeks. You might skip church next week because you're like, it was so great last week, don't want to ruin it. But I'm just telling you, eventually you're going to come down off a of cloud nine and be back in the real world and say, I need to meet with God again. And so part of what I'm trying to say to y'all, say to us is, I mean, this has to be a daily, really even an hourly battle. God, keep me hoping in you. Keep me trusting in you. Keep me, yes, having enough contentment in this life, but never expecting it to be full and never being shocked when it's not full. So we need to learn to pray that way. We need to learn to wrestle that way. I think that most days you're going to wake up in the morning... You're going to pull aside to get some time alone with the Lord and pray. And you're going to pray about 
the things that are most on your heart and mind, and that's not bad. All the things I have to do, all the things I'm worried about, my kid's salvation, this issue at work I have, my friend who's dying. What all, and listen, you should start there. But what I'm telling you there is, is at some point in your prayer time, you need to just kind of remind yourself this, God, yes, I want all these things. But even if you give me all these things, I know they won't satisfy the depths of my soul. So whether you give them to me or whether you choose not to give them to me, please help me to be as content as possible as I can be just in your loving kindness. Just in the fact that you chose me and you saved me. And yes, I might die. Yes, I might suffer in this life. Yeah, the next 80 years might be really tough, but then I get all of eternity that will be bliss. It will be perfect and that will be worth it. And so I'm living off of faith because the little foretaste of glory divine I've already had. Last thought won't be done. Okay. Um, th- this is easier on some days than it is on other days. This is the hardest when you go through really hard trials. Because a lot of times I think when you're in really hard trials, it's like, God, I'm really suffering. I'm really struggling. I'm really tempted. My faith is really wavering and what I feel like I need from you, if you could just give me a sign, if you could just give me an answer to prayer, if you could just give me something a little bit more tangible to sink my teeth in, I think it would strengthen my faith. Again, that's not a bad way to pray. Pray that way all the time. But, but I think here's, here's the key thought. When you're going through the worst trial, whatever it is for you, just remember Christ lived and went through a trial that was much, much worse. And when he cried out, Father, where are you? I need a little help to get through this one. He got no answer. He got forsaken. He got nothing. Although he did deserve grace and help and power. And that's the confidence that even when it doesn't feel like God is near, even when it doesn't feel like God is answering me, even when it doesn't feel like God is blessing me, he is. I can have confidence that he is. He rejected Christ in my place. If I've trusted in Christ, he's blessing me in the place of Christ. So I pray for the good gifts. But whether he gives them or not, I hold them really loosely. Because even if he gives them today, he might take them away tomorrow. Any of you ever experienced that? And the only thing, in a sense, that I really hold on to tightly is Christ. And the covenant that God made with me in Christ's blood, literally. And, and, and what gives me, I guess, the spiritual strength to keep holding on to Christ so strongly is that when he was on the cross, he was holding tightly on to me. He could have left. He said, no, 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 I want them. I wanted to die and suffer for them. Meditate on how tightly he is held onto you so that we can hold more tightly onto the covenant and be freed up from the addiction to his gifts. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithful life. Thank you for all the grace we have. Thank you for all the good gifts that we do get to experience in this life. It's, it's amazing. It's shocking. Let us have hearts filled with gratitude, filled with appropriate joy and just your lavish goodness, that you're a good God that loves to give good gifts to your children and you delight in our joy. And yet, would you please help us not to sinfully love, sinfully be addicted to the gifts, that when the gifts don't come, when the gifts are slow in coming, maybe when the gifts are taken away,
help our true faith to be grounded in you so that we can persevere even through the worst trials. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for persevering through death, hell, and the grave for us. Help us to live lives worthy of you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.